The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, Youth Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, and joining me today is Kotaku's Features Editor, Kirk Hamilton. Welcome to the show. Uh, hey, Kat. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to be talking about Kirk's two favorite topics in the world, <laughs> Destiny and The Witcher 3. Um, in fact, when I ran into Nathan Grayson just the other day, Kirk, he said, oh, so it's the Kirk Hamilton show. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, those are the two things that I'm always covering at Kotaku and always talking to everybody in our group chat about. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about both of those games. So you like the big open world RPGs then? That's kind of your bread and butter? I like them. I mean, I, it's funny. I always wind up, I wind up reviewing those and horror games for Kotaku, which are like both difficult to review in their own ways. Like, horror games because they're terrifying and you have to actually finish them to review them, and open world games because they're huge and they take forever, but you want to see everything uh, to review them. So they're, those are kind of two games that I wind up playing a lot of. So yeah, I have, I, did, like I reviewed Dragon Age, uh, Inquisition last fall, and now The Witcher uh, as well, which is, yeah, two really big fantasy open world you know, adventure games kind of close to each other, which was a lot to deal with. But yeah, I do kind of wind up reviewing a lot of those. Well, we'll be getting to our discussion on Destiny House of Wolves a little later. I wanted to get your thoughts on The Witcher 3, because you have finished the game, and you gave it a glowing review. Um, so it sounds like not only did you really like it, it might be your favorite game so far this year. Is it fair to kind of say that? That's that's a tough call. I don't know. I think Bloodborne might be my favorite game this year. I'm not... I don't know. It's... The Witcher 3 is really, really impressive, um, and I did really like it. Uh, Bloodborne fundamentally changed the way that I view video games in a lot of ways, and The Witcher 3 hasn't done that. So those two are very different. I, I know it's kind of apples and oranges, but um, I'm not sure I'd say Witcher 3 is my favorite of the year, but then it's kind of, I don't know, I have a hard time thinking in those terms anyways. Like, it's a very, very good game. I'm increasingly impressed with it. I'm actually playing it a second time through on PC now, because the early code we got was PS4. And I'm even more impressed with just with how I just wrote an article about this yesterday with how absolutely massive it is and how deep that size is, just how much meaningful uh, content. I hate the word content. We're all kind of becoming anti-content because it's such a crappy way to think about creative work. But just how much meaningful storytelling there is in this game is unbelievable. So, yeah, I'm very impressed with The Witcher 3. Uh, I think it's really fun. I'm playing it again um, after reviewing it. So I think that says a lot right there. So, if you haven't already read it, Kirk's review is over on Kotaku. He read, he wrote a whole lot about the game, and he goes into <laughs> like a ton of depth about all of the different systems. Um, as I already said, we talked about this in the last episode. I was a little bit skeptical um, of it based on what I had played, which is to say that I wasn't really feeling the combat. Um, I felt that it was. A little too simplistic for my tastes, um, a little bit too surface level. And that was fine, I guess, but it wasn't really speaking to me. But it seemed to speak to you. Uh, it's interesting. The, the combat for me was not... So, uh, I, you know, having played uh, The Witcher 2 several times, played some of The Witcher 1, but I'm one of those people who never finished it. 
Um, I, I, I respect how much The Witcher 3's combat is an evolution of The Witcher 2 and how much better it is. But then again, like I was just saying, after having just played Bloodborne, which I think, which is like some of the best third person, like, combat I've ever played in a video game, you know, it's not that good. Uh, the Witcher 3 is not as good as Bloodborne. It doesn't have that level of just unbelievable feel and that kind of next level stuff with like wind ups and, and timing and rhythm. It doesn't quite get there. Um, I think a, I have a lot of really specific thoughts about the combat in The Witcher 3, actually. So I've been playing it again on the second hardest difficulty, which makes a big difference for me in how enjoyable the game is. Because on normal, I was very quickly overpowered for everything. It started out kind of an okay difficulty, and then really by the time I hit level 8 or 9, I was just powering through every enemy. And I didn't even realize for a little while how much that was detracting from the game until I kicked the difficulty up to... a. I think it's called Blood and Broken Bones is the difficulty setting. And once I did that, um, the game became much more enjoyable and the combat felt a lot deeper because I just wasn't killing guys in like one hit. I'd have to be more defensive and think more about position, especially with like those big groups of neckers or drowners or whatever, do a lot more careful dodging. And I'd be constantly using oil before combat. So I'd, you know, I was kind of role-playing more as a witcher, which is what witchers do, is they take potions before they fight, and they use oils to get their blades ready for whatever monster they're fighting, and you don't really have to do that on the normal difficulty, which detracts significantly, I think. Like, it it, it just turns it into a kind of a Diablo-ish slashing game, and you don't really have to think too much about what you're doing. That said, I mean, I still think there are some issues mechanically. Like, the controls are good, but not great. The auto-parrying, where you can just hold down the left trigger, is kind of a bummer, because... Sometimes it magnetizes enemies' attacks to your blade, which is, it's set up to make it easy for you to parry, but it winds up actually getting in the way of, you know, more kind of artful dodging. You have to, you wind up doing a parry when you really wanted to dodge. There are little things like that that just, the the feel isn't quite there. And then, like I was saying, after playing Bloodborne, where that game is so tuned and, you know, the, the, like, hit detection on that game is bananas if you've ever watched the slow motion videos of blades and bullets, like, swinging within fractions of inches of one another... Um, it, playing something that finely tuned and then playing The Witcher 3, it's clear that The Witcher 3 doesn't quite match that. But then, again, not matching Bloodborne is no great failing. It's interesting that you bring up Bloodborne because I actually said something similar in the last episode where I said Dark Souls and Bloodborne have kind of ruined me, or have they've set the standard to the extent that I can't help judging all action RPGs in that kind of light. And that's not to say that I'm expecting Witcher 3 to be Bloodborne quality. I'm saying that it has changed my perspective on combat in video games. So when I'm playing a game like Witcher 3, even if I understand that combat isn't necessarily entirely the focus, it's the the giant open world and everything... I can't help but feel like I've been a little bit ruined on it. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, and I don't think of it as ruined, I guess. Like, it's like any, it's like any art, right? It's like any, anytime you see something great or read an amazing book or, you know, anything like that, like, it, it re, it changes your perspective, right? It like resets your frame of reference. And Bloodborne certainly did that for me. Um, I had played Souls before, but had never really gotten into it. Now I'm actually pretty deep into Dark Souls and I'm fully understanding why. That game is great. And yeah, I mean, it's once you really do it, and I really did it on Bloodborne. I played the crap out of that game. Um, it, it changes your frame of reference, and that's fine, right? Like, that's that's good, is that 
like critics should go and experience great art and then have their frame of reference shaken. And I think that The Witcher 3 seems like it was influenced by Dark Souls, where Bloodborne is the next level beyond Dark Souls, which nobody who made The Witcher 3 had even played that game, so they couldn't borrow ideas from them. So it just feels one step behind. But again, like I said, I think the combat is still pretty fun. And, and like you said, it's not the main point of the game. It's just one of the things that you do in that. It's also funny that you bring up Diablo. And a lot of people kind of refer to a hack and slash. Like when they want to disparage a hack and slash game, they'll say, well, you know, it's just like Diablo where they're clicking. But the, the fun part of Diablo is that you go in and you create your character beforehand. Like you, you create these really intricate builds that make a big difference in how your character handles different challenges. And so much of it is about using the proper abilities. And I understand that Witcher 3 and Diablo are kind of apples and oranges in that regard, but I think the point is that Diablo does in fact have quite a bit of depth behind his actual combat, whereas I'm hesitant to say that Witcher 3 does. It hews more toward just straight action and the straight action is just okay. Now, um, you mentioning the fact that you kicked the difficulty up a notch to the, um, to Blood and Broken Bones is interesting because we had one of the commenters on the last episode mention that he also felt that the game is much more fun if you're playing it at the higher difficulty levels because then it becomes much more timing based. Um, you're using your parries a lot more and then you're having to really dig into the mechanics. So I'm almost tempted to actually kick the difficulty up a notch um, as I continue to slowly but surely work my way through the game. I'd say do it. I mean, you can always change uh, in the middle of the game. That's, so what I did the first time through is I was just getting bored and I just kicked it up and was like, oh, this suddenly got so much more fun. I was near the end. I was maybe in the entering the final act or maybe the halfway point. And, and, you know, I just, I changed it midway through, which I'd actually recommend people do, cause it can be pretty tough, um, at the beginning, if you, uh, if you start, if you started at the hard difficulty, you know, the opening chapters can be pretty difficult. Um, so it, uh, it can be kind of okay for some people to start, um, at normal and then kick it up to hard. So I'd, yeah, I'd say give it a shot. You know, there's nothing to lose, really. And there's also, it also makes a difference in how you approach healing since on the normal difficulty level, you can just meditate and get all your health back. Right, which is a huge deal. Um, and, and there's actually, this was in my tips. I wrote this really big tips post for the game. Um, and one of my tips was there's also, a, uh, an ability you can get that's, you know, there are the, uh, the like beige abilities that aren't matched to any, to like signs or combat or health. They're, uh, one of them is that you can get a thing that causes you to regenerate health out of combat, and I think you regenerate stamina at night or something like that, and I recommend people not get that, because the second you start regenerating health out of combat, it totally eliminates the food system where you have to eat food and take potions to regenerate your health in between fights, which is actually a big part of the game, and without it there, you just accumulate all this food that you never use for anything and it kind of just totally cuts out one of the game's systems, which was clearly carefully designed into the game to work. Like, now I'm, like, eating chicken and, like, drinking beer all the time, and it's fun. Like, it's kind of cool. It's not. It actually doesn't strike me as annoying either. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel like that's, like, a, a more, uh, let's see, a more rigorous way to play the game because it, it allows all of the game's various interlocking systems, the oils, the potions, uh, the way meditation works, the uh, food, regenerating your health, all of that stuff, it kind of allows that to all work and breathe. 
Did you ever play uh, Fallout New Vegas? Yeah. And what you're talking about reminds me of the the hardcore mode in the right, game. Right, right. Yeah, play? it's it, uh, yeah. I did. I tried it. it I didn't. <laughs> I never really got that far, but. Um, I always, I mean, I, I think I played that game all the way through once, and then sort of, I, I always have fonder memories of New Vegas. Then when I come back to it, I'm always kind of let down by the actual game. But um, I do remember that hardcore mode, and it was cool. I'm guessing people are going to mod in an even better hardcore mode, to or a more, you know, rigorous, extreme hardcore mode into um, The Witcher 3, like where, I don't know, I was trying to think about what things could be. Like, you'll have to meditate every so often, and maybe uh, some potions don't work, or your toxicity is managed differently, and there are some kind of other things that make it even more like you're really, like, you can't fast travel, maybe, and you just have to be this guy, like, walking around a kingdom. I can't even imagine not having fast travel in that game. Yeah, it would be intense. I mean, I try not to do it, especially on my second playthrough, because I'm letting myself take my time, but there are just... There are times where I just like forget it. Like I'm not, I can't ride across this gigantic map just to go like do one small thing. That game is really huge. Um, can you give having finished the game, like how much bigger does the game get? It's comically massive. Um, I just wrote another article that was like an addendum to my review, just to talk about how big it is because I didn't grasp how big it was when I reviewed it. Like I played 60 hours, I think. That's my guess. Um, I, PS4 doesn't track playtime, but I. I Played around 60 hours to finish the story, but that required me at about the, like, somewhere between a third and a half way to just start putting the pedal to the metal and, like, powering through story missions, which you can do because the story missions give lots of XP, so you quickly level up, and, uh, like, once you get to Skellige, basically, and meet with Yen, that's kind of the point at which you can just start blasting through the story. But then there are, I mean, there were side quests I was just leaving untended, and then I would hit a point in the story where it would say, okay, these side quests are going to go away, you know, these two or three, because you're reaching a point in the story where you can't go back and do them. And I was like, okay, whatever, I'm just going to come back and play this again, so I'm just going to skip, skip, skip. And now that I'm playing it, and I'm going to try to do every single side quest and every contract and every collection uh, or treasure hunt, I, I cannot believe how big the game is. Like, it's going to, I'm past 60 hours now, and I'm nowhere. Like, I'm like not even... I just met Yen and Skellige, and uh, so I'm like I'm like almost at the halfway point in the story, and I just uh, I did I've done 117 quests. I'm sitting on I, I wrote these out for this thing yesterday. I'm sitting on 13 side quests and like seven contracts, a lot of which are too high level for me. Um, in addition to all of the boxing and horse racing, like I'm not even counting those. It's just it's it's nuts, and every side quest is like fully written out and has a story and a twist and like a mystery, and you talk to multiple people and can take make all these different decisions. The contracts are all that way too. Like it very rarely feels like go here, kill the thing, you know, turn in the quest and be done. Like even the most simple contracts have some kind of story to them, and so I just I can't believe how much work must have gone into this game. It's it's mind boggling. Yeah, we were raving about the the Noonwalker side quests that come yeah. relatively early in the game, which are the Noon Wraith, right? The Noon, the noon Wraith. Wraith. My apologies. Yeah. Um, which tells a nice little story on its own, and that's been one of the things, one of the kind of common arcs on this podcast is just talking about side quest design and how, as much as I like Dragon Age Inquisition, and I feel like I I rant about this every single episode. Um, <laughs> Just the, the collect-a-thon aspect of it um, comes off as filler. And it's tricky to design good side quests, and I recognize that it takes a lot of time, but I would almost rather have quality over quantity, you know? 
Yeah, I hear you. It's funny, like I that that comparison constantly comes up every time I'm talking to people about um, The Witcher, and uh, you know I've obviously been thinking about it a lot too since I reviewed Inquisition. And I really liked that game. Um, I actually too. at the time didn't even mind the collection stuff so much. I'm I'm, I'm kind of surprised by like how it seems like public sentiment on that game has turned over the last few months and people are very just like remember it as being this like BS collection of fetch quests where I'm like, okay, but like there was a lot of really good stuff in that game and a lot of cool side quests too. It's just, there was a lot of filler and a lot of just go, you know, get this many herbs or kill this many things. And now playing the Witcher really puts that in perspective because the noon is great. I, I think that, um, uh, white orchard in general, that, that opening area in the Witcher is a really cool, thing because it's kind of like a vertical slice of the game. Like it almost feels like the press demo or whatever. I never played the press demos of the game, but like it seems I'm like pretty sure it was the press demo. Yeah. It's what it seems like because it's like a perfect like collection of everything in The Witcher 3. Like there's a main story quest that involves you going from place to place and doing favors for people and eventually fighting that griffin. And there's a contract and then the contract is you're like, oh this is just gonna be some like some nonsense, I'm just gonna go kill a monster. And it turns out to be this whole story, this like tragic story of like a woman who was like killed and during the war and like hung in the well and it's really horrifying. And then because of that, like her soul is like not resting and you find her diary, right? And you like burn her diary at her corpse next to the well and she comes out of the well and you like have to fight the rape. And it's this whole thing. And like that's how every single side quest in the game is. Actually like a lot of them are way more involved than that. Um, and it's, it's, it's very impressive. So let's talk about Geralt himself a little bit. Um, I was struck by your description of him in your review where you called him part Jedi, part Batman, part Kwai Chang Kang, part Don Juan, and part Solid Snake. Um, I found him to be a decent protagonist, but how does he, having played Witcher 2 and, how, play, and now having finished Witcher 3, how do you feel like he's kind of grown over the course of the series? Well, he's an interesting cat, I think. Like, I, he's an interesting character to me because I'm really, I really, I really like Geralt. Um, you know, I'm, I, I just, I like how, I really like the, um, I'm, now I'm forgetting his name, but the voice actor's performance, I know I looked it up and put it in my review, but I think he does a great job, um, of conveying, uh, his sort of, he has this very low burn emotional thing going on where, he, you know, I think part of the lore of the Witchers, which is, has always never been exactly clear to me, is that Witchers are supposed to be kind of uh, not very emotional. Like, the mutations they undergo remove their emotions. And then I think uh, Geralt underwent additional mutations that are, are said to have given him more emotion. But then, I don't know, it seems like the other Witchers I see in the game are all just normal people. Like, they all react with normal emotions. So I never really quite know what to make of it. But Geralt is kind of this very low-key dude who, like, you know, kind of keeps his own counsel, doesn't take sides in things a lot, and uh, and then at times weighs in with some sort of you know surprising decision and like coming down on the side of one person or another, and uh, he's almost always cast as the person outside of the conflict, right? Like he's like he's the Ronin who came to town, or he's the gunslinger who showed up to deal with the bad guy, and in the process gets you know involved in this local squabble between, like, the village elder and, like, the new young guy who wants to take over. And Geralt kind of has to choose. And it's cool that you're helping this guy who's already a character, and you're just kind of deciding which way he's going to go on things without actually defining his character itself. Like, I don't feel like Geralt has changed for me from The Witcher 1 to The Witcher 2 to The Witcher 3. He's the same guy, 
his decisions have been the things that I've had control over, but he hasn't really changed as a person because he is who he is. Like he has this established backstory from the books, especially the Witcher three is constantly referencing that stuff. Like his whole relationship with Yennefer, which I think is one of the most interesting relationships I've ever seen depicted in a video game. No joke. Um, is, is largely based on uh, like the last wish and a couple other books that I actually haven't read, but you'll hear them referencing it regularly. And, uh, and you, you just sense there's this history with this guy. I mean, he's a, He's not the character that I made. I didn't actually have that much to do with divining who he is as a person. So I'm just sort of along for the ride. I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. Um, I understand that part of the point is that you're create, you're controlling this character. You're role playing as this very old and very awesome warrior. <laughs> uh, I almost wish that I could have created my own Witcher. I guess that's just what I want in an open world game. Yeah, I'm I mean, right, wandering. I want to be able to wander as myself. Right. I mean, it's definitely like a different approach. I mean, it. it I, I go. I go back and forth because I like Geralt. I really like what The Witcher is doing, and I like that it's different. I mean, I've played so many games recently where I've made my own character that it's nice to do something different. Uh, for me, like I'm fine with that. Like I'm. I just spent eighty hours or whatever playing Dragon Age as this, you know, my own custom character, and. I do think that creating a character, you know, having you role play as an existing character, it opens writers up to actually committing to narrative ideas and to um, character ideas, like that they can explore this relationship, especially like I was saying, the relationship with Geralt and Yennefer is fascinating. I won't spoil anything, but um, you really, it really starts to, you start to explore it once you meet her in Skellige. And she is like a great character. I love her. Um, she's this, kind of a terrible person and really power hungry, but also like very complicated. You never quite get a sense of where she's coming from. It's uh, the actress who plays her gives a, a great performance and her relationship with Geralt is also very interesting. She's really mean to him a lot of the time, which I think is in keeping with the way it is in the books, but they clearly love one another and they had, they've had this very complicated on and off relationship for years. I've just never quite seen a relationship like this depicted in a video game before. And, um, it's only possible because Geralt is an existing person. And like, we just wouldn't have seen it. Like, if I would have been playing my custom, you know, like guy or, or I guess you'd have to be a guy in this world to, like, yeah. to be a witcher, but whatever. Um, my I custom, mean, Siri my was custom becoming a, a witcher. Oh, uh, but she couldn't do the mutations. She only uh, becomes, she, she gets to the training because he just decides that would be good, but he doesn't let her mutate because she would kill her, apparently. But, um, you know, if it was my custom witcher who, like, I decided his personality, like, he wouldn't, you know, the relationship with Yennefer just wouldn't feel the same. So I, I, I kind of like that it opens them up and lets them try that kind of thing out. Like, it's a, I think it's neat. So I'm sort of, I'm a fan, really. Geralt himself isn't that different from the sort of characters that you see in a lot of different video games. I mean, I feel like he would have fit, he would fit really well in Red, Red Dead Redemption if you put a cowboy hat on him. <laughs> he fit really well in Assassin's Creed if you put a, a hood on him. Um, he He's a cipher, really. It feels he, like he's designed with the intention of the player putting themselves into him. I think he is to an extent, but I also think it goes deeper than that. Um, I, like I said in my review, I was, you know, I'm making fun of him when I compare him to all of these ridiculous tropes. I mean, 
on the surface level, he is like this comical collection of like male empowerment tropes, right? Like he's the silent badass who can kill anyone and is like the ultimate lover and women all think he's so hot and like he's just like the ultimate guy. And like if you just were going to live in this world and be the A number one badass in the entirety of like the Northern Kingdoms and you get to play as him. So like on that level, it's definitely like, okay, they created this guy that is like this like fantasy archetype that everybody wants to be. And if you, when you first get to know him, because he's so kind of taciturn and low key, he feels like he kind of doesn't have a personality. But then again, like I was saying, you exploring his relationships with other people over the course of the game, especially doing all the side quests, like the more I do those, the more I get a sense of him. He really does, is a character to me. Um, and I, he's much more interesting than he seems like if, even if you just watched, you know, watch some of the game or if you played some of the first one or something, like after playing a lot of them, I'm impressed with how, how deep Geralt goes as a character and how well thought out he's been. All right. So this is the part where we're going to jump a little bit into spoilers. Uh oh. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you to spoil exactly what happens at the end of the game, but let's talk a bit, a little bit about some of the stuff that happens after the midway point of the game and go a little more into detail. Cool. Um, all right. So first thing is, you mentioned that you find his relationship with Yennefer, like, really, really interesting. Could you go into a little more detail about that? Yeah. Well, so you find, when you meet Yennefer, you have to go to your, so you spend this whole game, um, you're, you're tracking Siri, right? So Geralt is tracking Siri, who's his adopted daughter. And, uh, also a child of the elder blood, which means she maybe has some great prophetic power. And she's the daughter, the actual daughter of the emperor of Nilfgaard, who is this emperor or empire, right? Who are invading. I'm sure listeners already know all this. So you're trying to find Siri and everybody, all your friends, all of Geralt's friends care greatly about Siri and want to help him. So you're kind of moving from town to town and place to place, meeting up with different people, trying to track down leads. And the whole first half is this big mystery. So you're in Velen, which is the sort of war-torn part of Temeria, and you meet with a guy who she stayed with, and then you find Triss Marigold, who is like Geralt's uh, on, and, on and off kind of love interest for the first two games, um, and she's in the city of Novigrad, and you spend some time with her trying to track down Siri, and you, these leads all kind of come up dry. And over the course of them, it's really interesting, you kind of paint this picture out of, they're actually out of order. Um, of what happened to Siri. Like, first she was here, and then she turned up here, then she teleported here, and she was with this weird elven mage, and who's this guy? Oh, and then actually she must have gone here, but we didn't learn that until later. So you're kind of piecing it all together. Then you travel out to Skellige, which is this collection of islands, and like the whole other higher level kind of half of the game. And you meet with Yennefer, and that's when you sort of first interact with Yennefer, which is usually after Triss. And Triss and Yennefer are kind of the like yin and yang of Geralt's uh, romantic interests. It's not as it's not as simple as saying they're a love triangle or that he has to choose between the two of them, but like they sort of represent two very different types. And uh, then you meet with Yennefer and you hang out with her. So your first interaction with Yennefer, or most of your interactions with her, involve her kind of telling Geralt what to do. And uh, before it actually, it's actually one of the things that I think is really interesting about Geralt is that he is very submissive in relationships, uh, in romantic relationships. He's almost always passive. And, uh, he kind of gets pushed around by women. And it's one of the things that, uh, I, it kind of defines his character to me. Like he, um, there's even a line I just, I just saw in a kind of side quest where he's like, 
look, don't let this get around that you told me what to do in this, right? I don't want people like to start talking about how I like being dominated by women. And I was like, this is really interesting. Like, I think that they're going for, like, this is a specific thing they're trying to communicate is that this is Geralt's type is that he likes, you know, strong women who tell him what to do. And, uh, Geralt or Yen is very much that. Um, like the first quest with her involves her making you dress up and you have to like put on nice clothes and go meet her at this, uh, wake. Uh, in Skellige, and you don't have to, but if you do, she's like very nice to you, and she tell, and you have to go through the whole thing and not drink. So people keep offering you drinks, and you, and if you say yes, you know you drink, but she gets kind of mad at you. But if you say no, you don't. But then they like make comments about how, you know, all all you all you like people from the continent are feared of your women and stuff. And um, then you go on this quest with her where she just ah, uh, there are these. Uh, it's a complicated quest. I don't. I don't need to break the whole thing down. It'd take too long to explain, but. She winds up doing some really horrible things. She like reanimates this corpse to make him talk, uh, to get information about Siri, because Yen cares a lot about Siri too. And um she winds up like totally defiling this sacred ground for these people in Skellige, just because she just and totally not caring about it. Like she's really pretty awful about it. And um you kind of can back her play, but not, and Geralt's questioning her, but she's saying, Look, I'm just not listening to you. I don't care what you think. And uh you have no power over her and no way to convince her not to do these things. And um it, it just as you go, it becomes very clear like what the dynamics of their relationship is. Yen does whatever she wants. She's extremely powerful and um never tells Geralt what she's doing or why. Everybody is constantly remarking, oh so you don't even know why Yen wants you to go get this thing. Well that's typical. And there's this kind of sense that the power dynamic of their relationship is very unevenly balanced toward Yen. And while Geralt might like that, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting relationship because it's not the sort of relationship that's usually explored. Like, for example, in Dragon Age Inquisition, one of the weirdest things about the relationships in that game was that you were the, like, lord savior of all of humanity, and you were, like, having these sexual liaisons with your underlings, and it always felt a little weird because the power dynamic was flipped. And you, not so, only that, but, see, I was playing with a female character, and I ended up with, what, the, what are they called? The the warrior, the the watchers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Black Blackwall was that his? Name? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Blackwall. I ended up with yeah. him, so I was basically dating a grunt. Right, and it it, it feels weird, right? Or you yeah. can get you can get with what's her name, the scout. And I remember I would be flirting with her and thinking, this is weird. This is a weird dynamic because she's like my underling employee, and I shouldn't really be doing this. And uh, so. It, and that's the thing with Yen, anyways, like the minor spoilers, I guess. Um, and then that continues through the game, like that dynamic, and it keeps exploring it in very interesting ways. So Witcher, the Witcher has always been kind of famous slash infamous for its sex scenes. Um, it was kind of doing that long before Game of Thrones kind of became infamous for sex position. Um, how does Witcher 3 approach it? And what do you feel? How do you feel about that? It's complicated. I mean, I think I tried to articulate this in my review, and I know this is a really it's a really thorny thing that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about. I think The Witcher 3 does very well by some of its women characters, and I think that it also makes a lot of really common mistakes uh, with how it, it depicts women, and uh, specifically like, sexual violence, I think, is is kind of an issue. Like, they, they don't really handle it that well a lot. Um, there's horrible violence done on a lot of people in this game, but... There are some scenes where sex workers, basically, you know, prostitutes are taken and just murdered in horrible ways. And, you know, it, it, sexual violence seems reserved for women in a way that, you know, is in line with Game of Thrones, especially recently, has been having similar issues. And a lot of that stuff really turned me off. Um, but 
when it comes to actually, you know, like it, the way that it portrays just sex, you know, Geralt having sex with people, um, which you can do with several different characters, and it's actually not even a very big deal, uh, since in the lore, witcher, uh, witchers are sterile and sorcerers are sta- sterile, so everybody's just kind of like this big, sexy, fun, you know, no consequences party. Um, I, I actually am really, I, I, I've been, the second time through, I've been just banging everybody that I can, um, because I wanted to see what'll happen. And so far it's been hilarious. And, and really what I'm struck by is the sex scenes are really funny. Um, they all end with a joke, which I really like a lot. Um, I think that they're goofy and they convey a sort of truth about sex that video games often don't or haven't always done well with where, like in a lot of times in Bioware games, there's this feeling, not actually including Inquisition, but earlier, there's this feeling of like, sex is this like sacred bonding act that you do at the end of the game before the final mission. And like, it's this, you know, intense emotional thing that connects us. And like, great. And that's true. And that can be true of sex too in the real world. But like, it's also just kind of a fun thing people do that's like silly a lot of the time. And like, in The Witcher, it feels that way. Like each scene is very uh soft core. And then they end with a gag. Like there's a, you, when you sleep with Triss, uh, you're like in this lighthouse and it's this great scene where, you know, the, this boat is leaving the, uh, leaving the port and, and they're watching, you know, you're up in the lighthouse, like kind of watching them make their escape. And then you, you know, you get it on and like it shows some kind of brief nudity. And then Triss, she's like a fire sorceress. And so then there's just, it cuts to the guys on the boat looking back at the um, lighthouse and you see the lighthouse fire is like going nuts. Like it's like getting really huge because Triss is like, you know, excited and they're trying to figure out if it's a code and they're like, Oh, they're sending us a signal and they start trying to write it out. And it's just like random nonsense letters because it's like not actually a signal. And every scene kind of ends with a joke like that, um, which I really like. Um, I, I just generally find, uh, Patricia just posted, Patricia Hernandez just posted all the uh, videos of all the sex scenes in the game. I didn't watch all of them because I didn't want to get spoiled, but they're all kind of that way. You know, you're on top of a stuffed unicorn with Yennefer and it's this whole goofy scene and they always end with a little one-liner. And, uh, I like that. I like that actually about Inquisition too. Like that sex scene with Iron Bolt was like the funniest thing I'd seen in a Bioware game maybe ever. Um, if, do you know what I'm talking about that scene? I don't. I was just thinking about what was it, Mass Effect 3, Mass Effect 2, where you can end up with um, the gal with the mask. Um, oh, yeah, with uh, with uh, um, Tali. Yeah, with Tali, and it's like, do you actually get to see what's going on behind the mask? Um, and it totally teases you. That's right, they fake you out. You don't see it until some point in Mass Effect 3. Oh my god, uh, do you actually see it in Mass Effect 3? I think 3? you do. I googled it, and I, there's, yeah, you see it, it's like a photo or something that you see. If, her, if you google her face, you'll see it. It's online. People have screenshots of it. But you do see what she looks like. She's pretty. I'm gonna um, have to but, Mass Effect 3 now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I can't remember if I actually saw it, because I think she died for me. So, and then, what? so in, if you let Tally die, jeez. Yeah, well, she died, and I decided to go with it, yeah. It, uh, it was one of those, in I can't, I'm not gonna mission? go back and, like, undo, no, it was, or for one of my characters in the suicide mission. For my other character, is because I think I just made the decision to go with the get in Mass Effect 3, and she, like, kills herself or something. And I was like, oh, oh my that God. Happened. I'm going to just stick with it, I guess. I was, like, not letting myself undo choices. But, um, yeah, so in Inquisition, there's this scene where you, if you have sex with Iron Bull, there's this great scene where you're in bed with him, and then, like, and people keep walking in because they need to tell you something. It's like a West Wing-style scene. You know how the West Wing would always do that, where, like, 
people would come in and be like, Mr. President, oh my God. Like, and then they'd stand there not looking at him and like be like, okay, look, we really need to talk about this thing. And like, and then people just keep coming into the room until like the entire cast of the game is like standing in the room and you're like in bed with Iron Bull, like after, you know, post-coital with Iron Bull and every, it's like a very, very funny scene. And, uh, I, I loved that scene for the similar reasons that it, it, it finally like started just making sex into this everyday silly thing that we can just have fun with in a game. Uh, rather than sort of immaturely treating it like uh, putting it on some pedestal, which uh, The Witcher 3 also does well. If you look at video games, I mean, sex in video games is inherently weird just because of the uncanny <laughs> valley element right. of it. Right. And they haven't gotten much better. I mean, they, despite all of that talk of 16 hours of mocap, like, there's some good mocap, but mostly it's, like, still weird dolls, like, banging their faces together. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's still cheesy looking. So I suppose the last thing that I'm kind of wondering about that kind of veers into spoiler territory is how how much do your choices affect what kind of happens toward the end of the game? Um, I you know I obviously I can't say for sure because um I don't know, but I'm pretty impressed. the The number of branches in the story is really really impressive, especially with how side quests like if you see someone in a side quest then later they turn up in the game, the decisions that you made in the side quest will, um, you know, will come back and they'll talk about them. I don't know about, like, how much that actually affects the way the story goes, but it certainly affects the way it plays out and the way dialogue plays out and the way people act toward Geralt, which is interesting. Then the way that it works is kind of you you get little endings um, for various characters uh, and they'll play out in these sort of illust- these cool, like illustrated cutscenes, and, and Geralt narrates them and he'll be like, you know, they say that a man is either, is neither good nor evil, but somewhere in between the Baron made these decisions, blah, 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 blah. And it like will play out this kind of little epilogue. And so you'll sometimes get those actually at midway through the game. You'll just see one. If you see a storyline through to its conclusion, and then at the end, you get a bunch of them, uh, kind of for every every character and every quest line because it's an ending. It, it isn't. It ends. Um, it like it's the end of Geralt's story. It's the end of everyone's story. So you get a real ending for Geralt. You get a real ending for Siri. You get a real ending for all of the you know for Triss and for Yen and for uh, every Zoltan and Dandelion and every other character. Like they all get endings, and you kind of find out what happened to them. Uh, through those little illustrated cutscenes. So the decisions that you make definitely up- affect those. There are like, uh, I actually emailed the devs to ask, cause I was like, look, I can't remake all these decisions, but how many endings are there and how do they work? Um, and like, you know, there are several endings for Siri, there are several endings for Geralt, um, they, they're very different. So, um, and they depend a lot on the decisions that you make, like over the course of the game, like whether you support someone in doing one thing or another thing, like whether you support the emperor or not, whether, you know, whose side you kind of pick in various disputes definitely affect, um, how the endings are. And honestly, the ending that I got was, I thought it was great. I was really impressed by the ending. I, I wasn't expecting the ending. It was like, I was affecting. I, I really loved the ending that I got. Um, I wasn't expecting it to happen. It, uh, I'm not, yeah, I just, I really, really liked it a lot, which surprised me. Like I came away just feeling super positive about the story. Like it was a lovely story in the end. And I wasn't expecting that. Well, okay, Kirk, I think that you've convinced me to keep pushing through. <laughs> I hope you don't hate it now. <laughs> I don't hate it. Um, it's just that I've been so hooked on Heroes of the Storm lately that 
it's been tough to pull myself away to play anything else. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm hooked on Destiny, which I think we're probably about to talk about, but it's similar where I'm like, ugh, like I have too many things to play. It's probably a kind of good counterpoint to a MOBA, though. I would imagine that The Witcher is kind of a good yin to the yang of the MOBA, or maybe yang to the yin of a MOBA. Oh, definitely. Um, it, I mean, more story based, more chill. Um, it's in, in its own way. <sighs> I was thinking about this earlier today, though, but. Playing a game like The Witcher 3 feels like a commitment, like I'm sitting oh, yeah. down to watch Breaking Bad or something, whereas Heroes of the Storm, I can always go, oh, it's only 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely more of a, well, I'm going to play for three hours, and like especially with the length of the quest in this game, God, like you really have to, yeah, it's a, it's a commitment. I think I'm also going to kick up the difficulty level a notch, because I think, I kind of agree with you, I think normal might be a little too, maybe a little too easy. So. Yeah, it is. Oh, my other tip that you should try is, you don't always do this, but try turning the music off sometimes. Um, okay. It actually surprisingly, uh, sometimes the music gets overwhelming for me. It can just, it's just kind of constantly running. And, uh, it can be very nice to just turn it off for an hour or two and just play with, you know, it's a little sparse, like the audio uh, mix without the music. It doesn't have that underlying glue holding it together, but it can be really nice actually, just walking around with no music and just the wind, basically, the wind in the trees. Uh, is a, a nice way to play the game. So another open-world RPG, and we've referenced it a whole bunch already, Destiny. Uh, open-ish world, anyway. Sometimes it feels more closed than any other game I play, but yeah. Yeah, that was a game that I kind of gave up on relatively early. Not because I hated it. Um, I was enjoying what I was playing of it, but it came out right in the middle of review season, or beginning of review season, I suppose. And I was... Obviously, super engaged with a whole lot of other games, and I was very, very busy. So, because I wasn't reviewing it, and because I wasn't doing the podcast at the time, I ended up setting it down and not coming back to it. But you've mm-hmm. done, like, everything in this game. Like, you've done, <laughs> yeah. have you beat, like, all of the raids? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've played, like, I don't know, four or five hundred hours of Destiny at this point. I've done everything there is to do in, in Destiny. It's- I can't. Well, not now. I haven't done everything in House of Wolves, but I've done almost everything in House of Wolves. And I've, yeah, I've done, played a lot of Destiny. It's funny because reading your posts about Destiny kind of reminds me of my relationship with Pokemon where it'll be so up and down. Like I'm very down on Pokemon mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. but sometimes I'll just get way up and I'll be playing it and playing it and playing it and doing all of these things and getting super invested in the metagame and then I'll go back down. Um, I remember after the last expansion and I'm like blanking on what the name is. Uh, the Dark Below. The Dark Below. You you were kind of referencing, you were kind of suggesting that you were, you were about done with Destiny, like you were kind of pulling away from it. Um, are you back in? Yeah, I'm definitely back in now. Um, I think that the, the common narrative, my narrative with Destiny is a pretty common narrative, uh, which is also I think, a, I mean, it's 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 difficult to play a game like Destiny in, in an entirely healthy way. I think that it engenders a lot of unhealthy behavior, which isn't always bad necessarily. It's just there are times where it can be kind of draining um, because it just it, it sucks you in and it gets you really like feeling like, OK, I have to do all these things each week. And, you know, I really want to get that cool gun I don't have. And like, you know, my team needs me. You know, the multiplayer thing is very, very um, persuasive and gets you to play. But yeah, so the, the general arc of it was, it came out in September, we got very into it, uh, my colleague Jason Schreier and I were both super into it, um, we got obsessed with the Vault of Glass, which was the first big raid that came out uh, about a week after the game was released, which was incredible, I mean, it was like one of the most 
interesting and weird things to be in a AAA game that year or ever. Um, it's very, very cool. So we got obsessed with doing that each week and uh, got better and better at it. Kind of finally started uh, running out of gas in about November or maybe late October, which was right around when Dragon Age came out. And I remember just being like, okay, we're kind of taking a break from Destiny, played a bunch of Dragon Age. Then in December, The Dark Below came out, expanded the game, raised the level cap, which was actually really soon for all that to happen. Um, Dark Below did some things very, very wrong, which uh, I can maybe explain in a minute, but um, it made some huge mistakes that uh, wasted a lot of our time. And at the time, we were like, okay, well, we're just going to go with it. But um, looking back, if they had done the same things again with House of Wolves, which is the new expansion, they would have probably lost a lot of people for good. They, I probably would have been, would have felt like, look, I can't do this every time there's an expansion. Um, so House of Wolves now has come out. Well, I guess the, so the wall that I hit was, I guess, in like February or March. I guess late February. There's just kind of a point where the Crotazen, the new raid called Crotazen was just kind of not that great. It had some unfair difficulty stuff built into it, uh, that it was just unbalanced. Uh, it, it wasn't as fun as the Vault of Glass. Meanwhile, the Vault of Glass guns were underpowered now, and we couldn't level them up anymore because they didn't match the new level cap. So it wasn't. It felt not worth it to do the Vault of Glass. Uh, we just kind of, everybody hit a wall, um, at least in my sort of six or seven or eight people that I normally play with, and everyone kind of stopped. And now House of Wolves has come out, and it's definitely a massive improvement across the board for the game. Everything is better. Bungie has clearly been listening and learning as they go. Uh, and have, have remedied a lot of things. There's still issues, obviously, um, but it's remarkable how much better the game got just last week. And, uh, so now everybody's playing again and, uh, and having fun. And I'm sure, you know, the, the merry-go-round will continue. They'll, we'll burn out again. We'll be back. You know, it's like a MMO. It's like any game with like a long, long multi-year commitment. You know, you go up on it and you go down on it. Yeah. The, the thing with Destiny was, I feel like, Bungie went in without any real experience making an MMORPG and they proceeded to make a lot of the mistakes that MMORPG developers made a decade ago, which is what so was so jarring about it. It was a lovely looking game. Um, it was a fun shooter, but it felt retrograde in its actual design. It, I, it almost felt, it felt very empty to me. Um, I think the fundamental problem that Destiny had when it launched was that there wasn't enough stuff to do. And so there just weren't that many missions. Like the story only took a few, you know, maybe 10 hours, if that, to play through. Uh, the raid was kind of the only thing that felt substantive. There were some multiplayer maps, but the multiplayer modes weren't that fleshed out. It just, it felt like a, a small game, which to me tells me, and I, you know, we've heard, I hear things about Destiny's development, but I don't really know anything for sure. But it tells me that the game was they, the, Bungie spent a long time on this game, and I have a feeling that a lot of that work was toward things that didn't wind up making it into the game, and that they had to scramble in the last year, maybe a year or two, to just get something working and ship it. And that now they're finally, they finally, they shipped this thing and said, okay, look, this is what we got. Here are the levels that we've got. Here are the planets. You know, here are the mission types. This is the best we can do. And, uh, then, you know, engineered a lot of systems around making those sticky and making people play them. And now they're kind of finally starting to flesh it out. I mean, honestly, House of Wolves, with both expansions, now this feels like the game. 
that, you know, quote, should, unquote, have been released last September. It feels like a complete game. So a lot of the other problems that Destiny had were based on the fact that there just wasn't enough to do, so they had to stretch everything out, you know, incredibly thin and make you do stuff forever to level up a gun and to get a new weapon, and, you know, everything was so parsimonious and so difficult to get, and that was because there just wasn't that much there and they needed to make it last. Bungie ran into the problem that every single MMORPG has ever run into, to my knowledge, and it's that they spend a lot of time crafting all this material, and then they are shocked when everybody blows through it within, like, a weekend. Uh, yeah. Well, and then it, it's funny, like, that. that's definitely true. I mean, you'll look at even House of Wolves, like, there are these really crazy, um, the multiplayer, the Trials of Osiris multiplayer thing, like, they, I think a lot of people manage to get, there's this secret lighthouse you can get to if you go 9-0 and in that tournament, and a surprising number of people managed to make it there, and I don't think, it didn't seem like Bungie was expecting, like, that many people to do it. Um, or, like, you know, people will clear the raid in, like, three hours. Like, when they launched Crota's End, someone cleared Crota's End. I can't remember. It was so fast. Like, this, because teams gear up for that, and they just, they train, and they get ready, and then it launches, and they want to be first. And um, I think that Bungie's learned now from their community that they can trust, they can trust their players to, like, figure out stuff that they did not see coming. And uh, that kind of dynamic has actually been one of the most interesting things about Destiny, is the dynamic between players and Bungie. Well, if we could talk about the Dark Below just a tiny bit, sure. I thought some of the decisions they made with that expansion were just outright crazy. Unbelievable, especially looking back at them. I'm, like, shocked. They did a thing. The the <laughs> So, okay, so in Destiny you get an exotic gun, and it's, like, a, the best type of gun. And um, those guns are, you know, they're really special. Like, they all have one kind of game-changing ability. And they take a long time to level up. It's very expensive. You know, you have to pour experience into your guns to get them max level and max damage. So the way that the Dark Below worked, this is like three months after Destiny came out, is they raised the level cap, which means they raised the amount of damage that guns do, which means that your existing exotic guns are doing 300 damage instead of 331. So you can ascend them, like you could enhance them to be new exotics that just do more damage, the same gun, but like they match the level cap. But in order to do that, first you had to wait until the weekend vendor, this guy Zur, turns up, and he had to have your gun as a trade-in gun for that week, which he only had like five or something. Then you had to trade it into him for a bunch of money and buy this like special upgrade thing for more money. Um, and then use that on the gun. And then you had to re-level the entire gun from scratch. Like it erased all of your progress and you had to re-level it up. So the time sink that was involved was just unbelievable. It was like the most, at the time, I can't believe I wasn't even more angry about it than I was. Like it was the most, outrageous time sink I've like ever seen in a video game. Um, so yeah, I couldn't believe they made, that somebody greenlit that decision was like, yeah, that sounds like a great call. <laughs> like, just who would decide to do that? I'm just wondering like, what was their, what was their thought process when they were creating that particular mechanic? Cause you know that somebody had to pitch it. Is yeah. I mean, I think implement it. And... I can't, I mean, I can't even, I, I can only imagine that it was basically, we want to give people stuff to do. Um, like, you know, we, we don't want them to just all immediately, everyone levels up all their guns and then everyone stops playing because they finished it. I think that what was happening, this is my guess. Um, I, I always don't like, like, guessing what developers think because who knows? Like, Bungie's a super complicated company with, like, lots of, I'm sure lots of, like, internal politics and factions and people who want one thing and people who want another thing and, like, the decisions that get made are, like, some weird compromise. So it's, you know, it's not like some person decided everything. But the feeling I get is that, there was a there was a lack of confidence for a little while 
that people would just want to play Destiny because it's fun. And that, um, that, you know, there always needed to be a reason. And that's true to an extent. Like, it's cool. Like, you always are kind of playing because you want to get a new gun or you want to level up the gun you have or you want to unlock a cool shader or whatever. But also, like, people really just play Destiny because it's extremely fun to play. You, you touched on this for a second, but honestly, like, it's one of the best feeling console first person shooters I've ever played. Like, the controls are just incredible. Like, the gun feel, which is like a kind of creepy term, but the gun feel in this game is unbelievable. Like, the feeling of, like, pulling up a hand cannon and headshotting a, like, alien from a hundred yards is just, like, perfect. Like, it, it, it is never not fun. And so people just like playing it. And gradually it's feeling like they're more confident that, okay, if we just give people guns and don't make them spend a ton of time leveling them up, they'll keep playing anyway because this game is just pretty fun. And that's kind of more like how House of Wolves feel. There's, they didn't do the exotic thing. They, when you, when you get a gun, you actually don't have to level up the damage. You, you can re-roll the perks on it. Like there's just a lot more generosity toward the player, which makes me feel like Bungie is more confident in their game now. And they think we'll just play no matter what. Well, let's just talk about House of Wolves in general. Like can you, for people who aren't super familiar with Destiny, could you explain a bit like what it brings to the table and sure. why it's such a big improvement over what's come before? So it um what it brings is it, it's you know it's a typical expansion pack. So it brings there's a new story uh, with some new story missions that are very cool. Um, there's a but they're also just story missions, which in Destiny are kind of the last thing anyone cares about. Um, you do them once, so you can you know unlock everything and then you're done. Uh, it brings a new strike, which is like a three-person mini raid sort of thing. That's pretty cool. Um, it um, there's a whole new uh, comp- or uh, sorry, a, a cooperative uh, multiplayer sort of wave challenge room thing called the Prison of Elders, which you fight through five levels that are kind of randomly generated each week um, with you know various bosses and different types of enemies, and it's kind of like waves of enemies or objectives or kill the one super tar- powerful enemy or like fight a boss, and uh, they all have different modifiers and like it's a so they're kind of like mini raid levels mixed remixed together. Uh, which is a really neat idea, and it's that's for teams of three as opposed to the raids teams of six. So that's a whole new thing. And then there's a new multiplayer, um, a new multiplayer sort of event each week called the Trials of Osiris, and that happens from Friday and through Monday of every week. And that's a really cool. I spent last weekend doing it. A really cool, really intense three on three, like quick elimination uh, uh, multiplayer sort of tournament. That can unlock really, really good gear for you, and uh, it's very rewarding if you do well. But the best of the best players are in there, and so you you really have to you really have to be on your game. Uh, so that's 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 about what it introduces, I guess. Um, as for why it's good, uh, part of it is the thing I was talking about earlier. There's a sense that it's waste. The game is wasting your time a lot less. Um, the new guns that you get, uh, like the like, so legendary and exotic guns are the two kind of class of guns that anyone really wants once you're past, you know, if you just started, maybe you like won't use those, but once you're past level 20 and have gotten better gear, like you immediately only care about legendary and exotic guns. So the new legendary guns, now you don't have to level up the damage, you know, they're kind of immediately usable. You can now take guns to this vendor and re-roll the perks that they have. So you can spend a little bit of currency. Um, and really easily like just change it up and kind of have fun getting the gun that you want. Uh, you can trade in currency for other currency. There's like a lot of kind of basic MMO stuff that like Destiny didn't have that they now have. There's like a currency exchanger where you can like switch one thing for another thing or like one upgrade material for another kind. Um, they've added a lot of stuff that just makes everything easier. 
So it isn't like, ugh, like I'm out of money. I have to go do this stupid activity for an hour to get more money. Now it's like, oh, I'm out of money. I can just go very easily get more money through any of 10 different ways. Or if you want to get to the level cap, it's much easier to get to the level cap because there's like 10 different ways to do it. They introduce the material that lets you ascend old gear that you got from the vault of glass to suddenly make it the new damage level. So now you can break out that old like gun that you really loved that had become irrelevant because of two level cap increases and like make it good again. This is a lot of stuff that like makes people feel like, okay, all my stuff is worthwhile. I have a lot of choices. I can do whatever I want. I have a million things to do. And then by adding all this new stuff, you know, prison of elders every week, there's like two weekly strikes. There's still two raids. Um, there's uh, trials of Osiris every weekend. There's still going to be iron banner, another multiplayer event that'll happen uh, probably pretty soon. That's like a weekly thing. There's so much to do in the game now that it finally feels like, okay, I can't do everything each week, so I can just do whatever I want. And it's kind of just, it makes the game feel much bigger and more generous and like more kind of more than it ever did before. Have you tried the, the raid? Uh, well, so there, there isn't a new raid, which is the, that's the thing that actually. What? No raid. Right. And that was, that was very controversial. Um, Jason was very, very upset about that. I was less upset because I wanted to see, you know, I, I, I understand, I think, I would understand why Bungie would want to wait on the raid. My hope, I have no, absolutely no inf- inside information on this. My hope is that they'll still release a third raid sometime before the Comet expansion, the big expansion that everyone's expecting this fall. Um, I think that'd be really cool and would go a very long way with players if they released a third raid, um, like in August or something. But I don't know. I understand why Bungie would maybe not feel ready on their third raid and want to hold it. Especially because how there's no I can't say the House of Wolves doesn't have enough to do without a raid. Uh Prison of Elders is really cool. God <laughs> I was playing last night, uh level thirty four Prison of Elders, which was the, one of the hardest things I've ever done in Destiny. Like it was a it was so hard. We got our asses kicked and I uh, had to stop on the boss because it was so hard. And um it was brilliant. Like it was a really, really brilliant thing and really felt like that same level of raid, like there's a crazy challenge going on and you have to really coordinate all these wild strategies and figure stuff out on the fly and like improvise. And it was just really cool. So I, I definitely would not say that house of wolves feels lackluster without a raid. That said, I'd love there to be a new raid. So, um, if Bungie wants to take their time on it and like make it good since Curtis end was kind of a disappointment as a raid, I'd rather they just do that. And, uh, even if it comes out with comment, I don't really mind, but, um, it'd be nice if it came out before, but yeah, there is, there is no new raid, which is the one thing missing. Is it worth jumping in again right now, or should I wait for Destiny 2? Um, I mean, that's the thing is, that there were a lot of people asking this when I was, when I wrote, I wrote a very positive in, impressions of House of Wolves last week, and a lot of people were asking, okay, look, you know, I haven't played Destiny at all, I'm thinking about getting into it. I, I mean, obviously, this is definitely the best time to get into it. Um, the game is still the same game. Like, I, I think, that's important, right? To like, <laughs> to point out it's, it's not like Destiny suddenly got a really good story and like stopped being repetitive and like, you know, it's still a game where like you kind of have to fundamentally just like shooting stuff in the game and like have a group of people that you play with and sort of regularly be down to beat your heads against really hard challenges and sort of do that whole Destiny thing. It's just like better and more forgiving version now than it used to be. Um, but yeah, it's a good time to get in because you know, you, you, it'll waste a lot less of your time. Um, the, the guns that you get, you won't have to level. You'll just be, it'll, I think it'll be much faster to get to the top, to level 32, uh, which isn't the peak level, but that's pretty close because the armor that you buy now, you don't have to level up. It just immediately gives you the extra levels that you need. So yeah, I mean, 
it's worth trying, but honestly, like if you lost interest in the game before, you might not. It wasn't that I lost interest. It was oh, that right. I That's ran right. out you of time. Busy. I was um, busy. And yeah, then I just then never came back to it. Yeah, I'd say definitely give it a shot. Especially if, yeah, I'm sure that some people on, you know, some people at US Gamer probably play a lot, right? So I'm sure they would be happy. Like people love it when, you know, their friends start playing and, you know, they'll be like, oh yeah, come with us on the Vault of Glass. Like we'll run you through and get you some good gear. Like people really like doing that. So if you know some people who play, which I'm, you know, I'm guessing you do. And I honestly, you know, we can play together. Um, yeah, yeah that's then the it's, thing. Then is it's that fun. I felt like I missed the Destiny train. So I made it to like, what, like level eight or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. that high. Right, right. And I I think I made it to Mars. I might have. I, I, I seem to recall being on Mars. Um, I felt like I missed the Destiny train because all of my friends who liked Destiny hit the level cap, like, did all of the, like, high level content. And while they were still continuing to play, I felt like, like, they didn't want to come all the way down to my level. So I felt hopelessly behind. Well, like, eh. it's tricky. Like you're, I mean, so right now where you're at, if you're at level eight and still going through the story, like that's definitely like, you're like basically in the prologue. Like the story is like destiny's prologue. So go all the way through the story and you'll probably get to level 20. Then, um, that I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'd be interested to try this to make a new character. Now I might do this actually. Um, cause I've been curious, first off, what the game is like for anybody who didn't buy the two expansions, cause you can still play Vanilla Destiny. And I get people emailing me about it sometimes, asking about it or talking about it. Um, which to me feels like, you know, it's very, very not the experience that I have since I've got like, you know, everything and all the expansions. And I'm also playing on PS4 where there's like, you know, PlayStation exclusive stuff. So I'd be curious what it would be like getting, cause getting from level 20 to level 30 is, used to be difficult. I think it's a lot easier now um, to get at least to level 26. And once you're level 26, you can do the Vault of Glass. Once you do the Vault of Glass, you can get Vault Armor, which raises your light even higher. You can start doing Crota. Crota's End is actually, um, for better or for worse, very easy to cheese. So, like, if you have friends who can take you through it, you can just go in and die. And they can, like, solo the first two parts of the raid and get you really good armor. Um, because there's so many exploits that people have figured out. So, really, like... I, it wouldn't take you very long to get from level eight to like level thirty um, if you kind of had the, had people kind of sherping you and telling you what to do and sort of work through it in that way. Uh, and then that's really where the game gets fun, which is annoying. Like I always hate it when people say, "Oh, the real game starts after thirty hours of garbage." Um, but in Destiny, it is it is it's it's not garbage, but it's like there's definitely a lot of like less fun stuff that you do. And then suddenly you're like, okay, now we're really in the groove of destiny and we're doing the weekly stuff and we're like max level and we're starting to like accumulate the gear that we want and sort of have a group of people we play with. And that's when it gets really fun. Sounds more like Pokemon all the time. <laughs> they always say that the, the story is basically the tutorial. Yeah. <laughs> and then Which once is you definitely get... true. Yeah. Of destiny. Yeah. Well, I'll throw it on the pile. So, Kirk, this is the end of the episode, but this is the part where I ask, where can I find you? Um, you mean, like, online? Online, yeah. Well, I obviously am at Kotaku, writing things pretty much every day at Kotaku.com, the gamer's guide. Um, I'm on Twitter at Kirk Hamilton, K-I-R-K, not Kurt. Um, I have a website that I never update, but that has a lot of 
uh, cool old stuff. A lot of a lot of music that I've done is there. That's at kirkhamilton.com. And uh, yeah, I guess those are probably the, probably the easiest places to find me. And of course, I'm Cat Bailey, and you can find me over at usgamer.net um, and on Twitter at the underscore catbot. If you have anything that you want to add to our conversation about Destiny or The Witcher 3, feel free to drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. Or, you know, if you just want to talk about RPGs in general, I like to read emails occasionally if they're really interesting. Um, so anything that you send to me may be referenced on the air. Please drop us, uh, please review and rate us over on iTunes. It helps give us more visibility and we can talk more about RPGs then, which is really great. And of course, check out our Twitch and YouTube channels at USGamerNet. Until then, for Kirk Hamilton, or thanks to Kirk Hamilton for coming on the show. It's for me or something. I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on the show, Kirk. Sure. My pleasure. This is a lot of fun. And of course, I've been Kat Bailey, and until next time, happy adventuring.